In Deuteronomy 4, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth. Do you fear God? Are you supposed to live daily in fear of Almighty God? Or was fear just an Old Testament reality that is now a New Testament thing of the past? Let's address the subject of fear on today's edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert. And I'm Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, in Matthew 10, Matthew writes, Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In the same chapter, just three verses later, he writes, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So are we supposed to fear God or not? Well, uh, clearly from uh, that text, the answer is uh, yes and no, right? Uh, well, that doesn't help me very much. Right. Well, so, so sorry, that's the place we have to start, though, is that, uh, yeah, we're commanded all throughout Scripture to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, um, the writer of Proverbs tells us. and uh, But we're also uh, told uh, many times, don't fear, uh, have no fear, be, be not afraid. And so I guess that's what we'll have to suss out today. What does it mean to fear God, but to not live in fear? I think generally speaking, we avoid fearful situations. And I'm not talking about roller coasters and scary right. movies here. Genuinely f uh, uh, fearful situations. So why would God want us to fear him? Well, he's completely holy, the Bible insists. He's completely other than us. And usually, usually we think of fear as being caused by things that are bad, uh, um, sickness or war you know, disease, things like that. We think of fear as being caused by bad things. It's hard for us sometimes to think about fear being caused by something that's so good. It's scary. But that's the place that we are, that, that the Bible tells us that we as humans are and before the face of a holy God because we're sinful and broken. And it's not, uh, I think I've said this before in here, it's not an emotional thing on his part. It's not that... Um, he, he's so angry at us that he's trying to scare us. It's just his character as holy. We should be scared before, as broken, as broken, sinful human beings, we should be scared before a holy God. I, and again, I've probably done this illustration in here before. You know, fire does not dislike paper. It's, it's, not a, it's not an emotional thing. But the nature of fire and the nature of paper are such that the paper should steer clear of the fire, else it's going to get burnt up. It should be, in a certain sense, it should be afraid of a fire which has the ability to destroy it. And that's how we are before a holy God. Would you agree with me that culturally, at least in our American situation, that we have moved along the spectrum away from generally accepted objective truth in the direction of a more subjective kind of way of understanding things? So that when we talk about something like fear, which is, I think, at the center of emotion, we look at it subjectively. And so what I think you just said st struck me as sort of an objective description of, of the word fear and, and what it means in the Bible. But I'm thinking of it emotionally. So do I have to turn that loose in order to have any hope of making my way through this conversation? Uh. Turn it, turn it loose. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I mean, if if I can't even come up with an objective understanding of fear or the fear of God, if fear to me is just bad, right? And now I feel like you're going to try to talk me into yeah fearing God anyway, even though it's all bad to me. How how am I going to cover that distance? Well, yeah, that's, that's that, I see what you're saying. Really, you've got to come. It's I'm, I'm not scared of fire right now because I mean, there's no fire in this room. I, so I objectively know that fire can hurt me, but I'm not in any contact with it. So right now, I don't have any sort of feelings like that. But if I if if you would invite me to a bonfire at your house, and uh, I had one of my kids, well, they're kind of too old for this illustration to work now, but, but one of them was kind of toddling around. I, I would be very, very, very afraid. I, I would start to feel the sort of nervousness. I got to keep an eye on them. I got to make sure they don't get too close. And the reason why is that we would all be in the presence of the fire. And, and if we don't experience the, the good biblical fear of God, which a lot of us don't, but believers and unbelievers, we don't experience that. It's because we're not in his presence like we should be. And uh, once we are, I mean, that's the, if, if you want to experience the fear of God, I think the thing to do would be to go to his presence. Anytime we see a human being in scripture, uh, in the presence of God, or in the presence of somebody they even think is God, like the Galatians, when uh, Paul, and I can't remember who his partner was at that time, came into town and they fell down, you know, thinking that they were deities, or when an angel of the Lord shows up in a um, the book of Revelation and John falls down and the angel says, get up, I'm not, you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm a created being just like you. Anytime somebody's in the presence of God, they fall down on their face in this really appropriate fear of being in, in, in proximate connection with the transcendent Holy One. If we want to experience that, we're going to need to be in proximate connection with the transcendent Holy One. It jogs my memory a little bit. I'm thinking of, I, I believe it was Peter who was in the boat and had fished all night and hadn't caught anything. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus says, well, put out your net. And he says, well, you know, I, I'm I'm embellishing here a little bit, but it's like, I'm a professional fisherman. I fished all night. I didn't get anything. Okay, yeah. but since you say do it, I'll do it. So he puts the net out and then he pulls in this haul of fish that is, uh, is huge. Mm-hmm. And you would think that his response would be, hallelujah, praise the yeah, Lord, yeah. thank you, Jesus. Uh, you know, look at this, I'm going to make a lot of money today. But instead, he falls down before Jesus and says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful yeah. man. Was that oh, yeah. fear of God? Yeah, that's a super good example. And I hadn't thought of that one. That's a good one. Yeah, I mean, so he realizes in the moment, of course, and it's it's all mixed together, too, with his, I'm sure, thankfulness. And also probably thinking, oh, we made some money today. But he realizes in that moment that, you know, woe is me, like Isaiah says in Isaiah 6, when he sees God, woe is me, for I'm undone, because I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter experiences that same thing in that moment. Just in the amount of fish that he gets, the veil is pulled back, and he sees, uh, oh my gosh, I am standing in the presence of the transcendent here in this construction worker sitting next to me in the boat. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. That's a great example. You know, so is, is Peter afraid of Jesus? Well, to go back to your original question, yes and no. He, he loves Jesus. He's not, you know, he's not quivering in the bottom of the boat. You know, don't strike me, Lord. 
Uh, but he does have a fear now. Like I am messing with things that are too great for me. That's what's going on in his mind. You know, I need to be careful here. So, so yeah, yes and no. This question of fear is something that I've always struggled with and don't feel like I have a very good understanding of it now. Mm -hmm. Would it be correct to say that the natural fear that we associate with things like, as you said, the bonfire, where you have to be very careful because the bonfire is dangerous, yeah. that natural fear, is there something else that is a supernatural fear? It's just a different thing? Or are they pretty much the same? Or is it an overlap? How do we compare supernatural fear like we're talking about today with just regular natural fear that every human being experiences? I don't know if there's a difference in the way that humans in the Bible experience that. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if Peter in the boat, for instance, or Isaiah in the presence of God experiences something categorically different than the fear that you would experience when you're about to be burnt. Um, it's caused by something that's more powerful. I mean, so in the text that you quoted right at the beginning there, from Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, don't fear the ones who can, what does he say? Don't fear the ones who can destroy the body, but the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, right? So, of course, if somebody is trying to destroy our body or something, a fire or cancer or an army or a guy with a knife, we're going to be afraid. I think that that's not necessarily categorically different than being afraid of a God. Jesus is referring to God, the one who can destroy our body and souls in hell. But it's caused by a different thing. And I don't know if this is where you're headed with this, but one of Jesus' point is not that the fear is different, but that the source of the fear should be different. Don't be afraid of cancer. Don't be afraid of the, don't be afraid of the crazy guy with the knife. Don't be afraid of the foreign army. Uh, don't be afraid of the tidal wave. Be afraid of the one who actually has the authority to destroy our bodies and soul and hell. So to transfer that fear off of those things to God himself is the beginning of wisdom. And now there's more to say here, right? Because I, and we're, I'm sure you're going to drag us in that direction. There's a sense in which, you know, abject fear of God is inappropriate, you know, a, like you pointed out, three verses later, Jesus says, don't fear. So, But the starting point is a holy God is the only truly scary thing in the universe. On the Transfiguration Mountain, uh, Matthew says that Peter, James, and John were, the word, the translation word is terrified. Right. And then after the event, after the cloud is gone and all the bright shining light is gone, Jesus says, to the three of them, rise and have no fear. Right. So were they wrong to have been terrified in that moment? No, I think that God has them. And this goes back to, you know, our conversation. Well, you brought up uh, Peter in the boat after the great catch of fishes. I think Jesus is, is pulling them into the point where their fear of the transcendent, which they experienced, they see Jesus uh, glowing bright white. They hear the voice out of heaven. That's an appropriate fear. Jesus is also saying, now I'm telling you, I'm here with you, I'm on your side. That level of fear, in some sense, is inappropriate. It's both appropriate and inappropriate. And um, there's deeper reasons why that Jesus doesn't explain right there. But I think, I think that that was fair. That's, I don't know of anybody else in Scripture who 
comes in, like I said earlier, comes in contact with that experience of God and isn't afraid like they are. So let's go back to Peter. Peter had that extraordinary moment in the boat when, uh, with the giant catch of fish. And there's something going on there. I'm not exactly sure what that was, but it appears to be the fear of God. And then we get to the crucifixion, the trial and the crucifixion. And Peter doesn't seem to be so much afraid of God anymore. He seems to be more afraid of little servant girls and people who are saying, oh, you were with him. You're you're one of of Jesus' buddies. Um, What happened there? Where did did the fear of God go that he was reduced to a fear of just people? Right. Peter, Peter is having an experience. Peter's always struggling throughout the gospels, like, like the rest of the disciples, like me and you, like whoever's listening to this, especially for those of you who are Christians, we struggle with Jesus as a point of contact with the divine. When, when that when the, that veil is pulled back and Peter sees Jesus, who he really is, the eternal Son of God, he he experiences this fear. Peter is grappling with that vision of Jesus, but also his desire that Jesus be the political military Messiah who's going to deliver them from Rome. And frequently, that desire for Peter is so strong; it's so ingrained in his worldview of you know, what the, the, what's the target of the story of God in the Old Testament in the Bible? Peter thinks it's uh, a political freedom for Israel. What is the Messiah all about? Peter thinks it's going to be a mighty warrior king to defeat the pagan armies. That, he, that gets clouded sometimes. I mean, this is, why he's, uh, this is why he runs away in the garden is because he doesn't see Jesus for who he really is. He sees Jesus as a would-be Messiah, and at that point, when the little girl comes up to him in the courtyard outside of Jesus' trial, he sees him as a failed Messiah. And so the vision of a, a, the transcendent God is no longer there in front of his eyes. Instead, it's the vision of, if I get caught, I'm going to end up dying with this fake Messiah guy. And that's, what's really, that's what really scares him. All that being true... Still, there was that one moment where, as Peter is failing and denying his Lord, not once or twice, but three times, Jesus had spoken to him directly saying, this is what you're going to do, which is a kind of a transcendent thing in the middle of his failure. Sure. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit? I guess Peter walked a path that the rest of us rarely walk, if ever. Right. With, with seeing things that he saw and then having, can I say, a colossal failure right there at the end? Yeah, um, he, def- he definitely, I, I never sat in a boat while Jesus miraculously provided a ton of fish. I, I've never st- literally stood on a mountaintop and seen uh, the veil pulled back, although you know, like the writer of Hebrews points out to us, we have been taken to the mountaintop. We are on Mount Zion, as Peter himself points out. Uh, we do have scripture, uh, which is a sure word, but Peter's comparing it to his experience on top of the mountain. I don't know. Peter's, P- Peter is definitely a fleshed out character. He's a good, he's not flat. He's not one dimensional. You know, what's going on in Peter's mind uh, through all that um, fear? Definitely. You see that he runs away. Uh, he lies. Uh, disappointment. Uh, disappointment. 
What, what, what brings Peter to the trial period? There's something going on in there. He's, I know, I know maybe we're drifting away from the topic of fear, but there's some level of disappointment and longing. There's a personal connection that he's developed with this guy, Jesus, that pulls him personally close to the man, Jesus, even when he wrongly, according to Christians, is convinced that Jesus is a failed Messiah. He still wants to be close to him. He's, he feels he definitely feels guilt. We see this at the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus kind of deals with this sense that uh, Peter's let him down by denying him. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I do know this, though, that, um, you know, so Luther tells us in, in the Catechism, we're to fear, love, and trust in God all things, above all things. And the reason why Luther says that is because fear, love, and trust are the three and we're talking about fear today, the three best ways to get at what our idols are. Now, Peter's idol is political power over the Romans. And when that's gone, he becomes afraid of things other than the creator God. He becomes afraid of losing that, losing his life. And, and we're all in that same boat. We're to fear God above all things because only he is scary. Only losing him only losing God, that's the only truly frightful thing in the universe. And when, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm no different than Peter. What are the things that I put hope in? Well, uh, I think I'm a pretty darn good American. I put hope in money. The notion of being poor, the notion of losing my house is horrifying to me. Well, why is that? It's because I fear losing my house. That's, a, that's, a, that's that fear of losing my house or not having money. That's a, that's a signal that I am loving and trusting and worshiping money and socioeconomic status above God. And in that sense, my fear, like Peter's fear of the girl in the, in the courtyard, is a symptom of an idolatry that needs, I, I shouldn't fear losing my money. I should only fear the creator God who has the power to take away all my money and give me all my, that's who I should be scared of. So you referenced uh, Luther in the small catechism talking about fear, love, trust, God. Right. I don't know where I rank on those scales. I feel pretty good about loving God. I, I believe that I'm a, a God lover. I believe that I am a God truster. Do I have this mastered? Absolutely not. But if I come up short on any one of those three, I'm thinking it might be fear. Do I fear God when I come into church on a Sunday morning, and the Word of God is going to be proclaimed, and the body and blood of Jesus Christ is going to be shared. I don't think I fear. I'm, I'm in the presence of God. I don't think I'm fearing anything there. Am I coming up short? Do I need to go to work on that? Uh, you're going to get sick of me saying this, but can I say uh, yes and no again? Uh, yes, we need uh, a more genuine holistic connection, an experience of our connection with God. And I think that when I think that when we do, I think that it's easy for us to not not experience the presence of God in this powerful way. And so objectively it's there. You know, God's word is preached and he is speaking according to Christians. Uh, uh, the bread and wine of Holy Communion are there, and so God is powerfully present. Jesus, all of Jesus is present. But as far as like, I can be so casual about it that I don't experience what, what Peter experienced in the boat, and I, I need to 
as if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, I need to experience that sometimes. But let me say no too, because unlike fear and love and trust and love, fear is fear is it's different than those other two. You know, you're not going to qualify trust and love. But that's we should trust God. End of story. We should love God. End of story. Now you are going to need to qualify fear because if you say we should fear God, you can't really say end of story because all the questions that you and I are talking about today. Is it, is it appropriate to have this abject fear, terif- you know, being terrified of God? And the answer is no. That's, is, Jesus tells us not to fear in, in Matthew 10, right? Like you pointed out. And so that one has to be qualified. So that, that one is going to be, for, for, for Christians, that, that one of the three is always going to be a little bit difficult to kind of grapple with experientially. Did the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost change the way we understand fear? When we read about fear in the Old Testament and the things that are written there, is that different than the meaning of fear after Jesus has has died and risen again? Yeah, I mean, I would we we wouldn't be Christians if we didn't say that the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost on all people didn't change everything. But definitely, that's one of them. So there's this fear, you know. So so you're reading. This is not. This is in the Old Testament too, by the way, right? Uh, this this uh, notion that the fear of God has been mitigated by His plan to forgive sins. Uh, the entire book of Leviticus is about how can a holy God make us one with him? We talked about, you brought this up last time when we were talking about forgiveness and atonement. And once, once we see that, 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 our, that the holy, righteous, transcendent God has a plan to reconcile us to himself, that fear, it doesn't go away, but it does become explained. It's not the fear of punishment anymore. It's the fear of you can say the fear of a God who has the power to punish, even though now we've become convinced after we've seen uh, his own death on the cross that that punishment is not coming to us. But still, that power of punishment is still there. So yeah, now that we know God's plan to reconcile humans to himself, God's plan to make us one with him, to take care of us, to love us, to protect us in the death and resurrection of his son, that fear does get now, now we know that's a fear that I need to have, but not I don't need to have it because I think I'm going to get the brunt end of it. But I, I need to have that fear because he is the God who has that power to do that. Now, he chooses not to do it with me because I'm in his son, Jesus Christ. But it doesn't mean that he does not have that power. So what if I were to say, well, the use of the word fear in the Bible doesn't really mean fear. It just means reverence or awe. Right. How would you respond? I, so I hear that. I mean, I hear that a lot. I hear that out of pastors that I really love and respect, and Bible teachers that I really learn a ton from. And I know what they're saying. And I what are they saying? Well, they're saying that they're trying to say there's a difference here between uh, there's a difference here between the fear of the one who has the power to destroy body and soul in hell, and don't fear. Obviously, unless Jesus is schizophrenic that he's talking about different things there. 
And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to come up with language that will explain how can you be afraid of God, but not really afraid of God. And I totally buy into that. I don't like to use that language myself because the Bible consistently uses, both in Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, and in Greek, in the Christian New Testament, the Bible consistently uses the exact same word, fear, to speak to both of those things. So, and I think that the Bible wants us to not separate those into two separate things, but to be able to separate those into two separate focuses. God as power to judge, yes, fear that. God as power to judge, but chooses for the sake of Jesus Christ not to judge me. There's still fear, but it's not the fear that I'm going to get punished. And if you want to use the word reverence, I totally understand. I get it. I'm not a huge fan of it because the New Testament and the Old Testament don't give us different words for those two different things, but I know what they're saying. I mean, so the illustration I give a lot of times is, um, you know, uh, my family and I have been to the Grand Canyon. It's a little bit like the bonfire illustration. My family and I have been to the Grand Canyon, and when you go visit the Grand Canyon, you go to this, you pull in, and you can go right to the visitor center right at the front, and it's got these huge fences and bars, and it's usually crowded with tourists. You just you don't have to drive very far down the edge of the rim of the Grand Canyon before you can get to spots where there's no fence at all and no people. Um, and I mean, literally, you could take two steps and plummet miles to your death. And there's little signs here and there that say, uh, you know, be careful. People fall here every year and die. So, I, you know, I went there with my wife and kids, and uh, it's just unbelievable. I, I, I'd never been there before, and I thought, well, I've seen pictures of it before, so I kind of know what I'm in for. But if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, it's, and I know this is a cliche, pictures, of course, don't do it justice. It's awe-inspiring. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I bet that I probably cried a little bit when I first stood on the edge of it. Now, um, we were all terrified, especially with three small kids. Like, get them back from the ledge. And, and my wife, Angela, was saying, sit down, sit down right now. Don't move. Everybody sit down. You know, she didn't want us kind of drifting close to that edge where the kids might, you know, stumble or do something foolish that kids do and fall off the edge. Okay, so fear of the Grand Canyon. I, I, that's the closest I think I've come to experiencing something like what Peter is experiencing in the boat in human terms is here is something that's awe-inspiring and beautiful, like jaw-dropping, shockingly awe-inspiring. What makes it so, the part of what makes it so is just the, its vast depths, the vast depths which are able to kill me. And so I, I know, I'm, I'm not scared that, I, I honestly wasn't scared that I was going to die, but I was scared that the thing that I'm standing two feet away from has the potential to kill me. Right? So I think that's what's going on with Christians and God. Is like, you know, John says in 1 John um, 3 or 4, I don't remember, uh, you know, perfect love casts out fear. And he's talking about the punishment of the final judgment. You don't need to fear punishment, he basically says in there, in those verses, because you, the perfect love of God should cast out that fear. It doesn't change the fact, though, that that God who perfectly loves us, who is so jaw-dropping, awe-inspiringly beautiful is the same God who, if you mess with him, if you cross him, if you rebel against him, has the power to destroy. In that sense, fear. Now, if you want to call it 
reverence or awe. I, that, 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 what I'm saying is I totally understand that. The Bible doesn't call it reverence or awe. It just calls it fear. So I'm going to stick with that. But I know exactly what those teachers mean. And there's, some, there's, there's quite a deal of sense in it. What if I were to say, well, come on, this is much more simple than I have tried to complicate it. Most of us have an example in our lives. We have fathers. Let's just use fathers. Right, yeah. We could use mothers too, but let's just use fathers. You grow up in a house where the father is the head of the house and he loves you. He provides for you. He takes you places. He sees to it that you have food and education and all these things. But he has a line and he says, don't do this. Right. Don't fall in the Grand Canyon. Don't go in the bonfire. Don't play in the street. And if you cross that line, then there are consequences, right. punishment. In that sense, you fear your father. But that doesn't mean that you don't think he loves you anymore. So we have, am I correct to say that we have a kind of a contemporary example that, yeah. that helps us understand this? I think a lot of us get that. Now, uh, yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense to me. That's the way my father was. Some people, though, here, the, the, only pe the, the people who are going to struggle with this, that illustration, which I think is a really great one, is that some people out here have had fathers who they really did experience this sort of abject fear. There wasn't... The punishment from that father was a real and present danger. I mean, I don't mean like discipline, loving discipline. I mean, the, the wrath of a father who's got a bad temper, or who's uh, just hateful, who doesn't care. There are some people who've, who who don't have good fathers who haven't experienced that. The other problem on the other side of the pendulum is the problem probably with me and my son. So we have a, um, our family has a, um, a friend from Iran who tells us, She's shocked by the way my children talk to me in kind of a sort of a flippant way. And so I, I've, I've reacted against, you know, the kind of strict, stern father of the 1950s. And now I'm probably too casual. And my son probably doesn't know that experience of fear like he should. So when we use that example, uh, you always have to kind of come back to God to ground it. The Grand Canyon for me is a little bit more solid because it's just there and everybody sort of gets it. It's objectively there. People have different experiences of fathers, so it's a little bit harder to say, hey, your experience of God should be like your experience of dad. Your dad, it's probably better to say our fathers should have been more like God or me as a father, I should be more like God. Uh, but it, it, it is helpful if you can imagine you know, a good, loving father, but who's stern and, and lovingly cares and disciplines for his children, and, or mother too. That's, that's probably a good inroad to understand this as well, Chuck. Aaron, I don't know if we flesh this out as, as much as we could. This is a, a subject that just still seems so broad and yeah. uh, undefined. It's just like you're... I'm, poking holes in it, but I don't know if, if uh, we've covered the whole subject, but I guess yeah. that's our best shot here today. But Well, um, what do you think about next time we get together? So we've talked about fearing God. And again, if it feels like it's, if it's like you say, just uh, tapping on the edges of it or just, it's, you know, what we really should be doing is coming into the presence of God to experience what that fear is really. But maybe it'll help if maybe next time we could talk about not fear of God, but the other fears that we have as well, too. Okay. All right. We'll make a note on that. 
And thank you for those of you who are listening to Craving Answers, Craving God today with Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. We encourage you to share your questions and comments on our website at stjamesglencarbon.org. Just click Contact Us and you can leave your message there. I'm Chuck Rathert. Thank you for listening.